This week's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. DreamCloud is an affordable, luxury hybrid mattress that combines the best of latex, memory foam, tufting, and coil technology to provide the best sleep that money can buy, and an exciting combination of comfort and support. And what's particularly great about it is that with a 365-day free trial, that's right, a full year to try it out, you can take your time deciding whether you like it or not. For listeners of the show, DreamCloud is offering 200 bucks off your first order. Head on over to isaacmeyer.net slash dreamcloud, that's one word, dreamcloud, and click the link for the discount. And then once your new bed arrives, have a lie down, enjoy the comfort, and crank up the podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 251, Homosexuality in Japan. So this is an episode I've hesitated to write for a long time, not because it isn't important or interesting, far from it, but because it's far outside my own speciality. As you probably know, or have guessed at least by this point, my focus was, is, and always has been political history the history of the Japanese state, or of states more generally, how they organize themselves, organize their armed forces, manage their economies, and attempt to shape their societies. Social history has never really been my forte, not, again, because it's not interesting or not important, it's just not where I found my passion. Still, this is the History of Japan podcast, not the Political History of Japan podcast, And part of the joy of making the show, frankly, is that I get forced out of my comfort zone and learn things I wouldn't otherwise. So with that in mind, it's time to do an episode on the history of same-sex relationships in Japan. Oh, and by the way, I'm definitely marking this one as not clean, not because the subject of homosexuality is somehow inappropriate, but because, well, some of the sources we'll be drawing on to discuss it are a little racy for lack of a better word. So first, a little background. Homosexuality has a very different history in East Asia than it does in the West. Confucianism, for its part, has nothing to say about homosexuality or indeed really sex of any kind. The works of the great Confucian thinkers, like Confucius, Mencius, and Jushi, are really focused much more on relationships outside the bedroom, on hierarchy and social order. Sex really comes into the picture primarily in terms of the continuation of the family line. So long as said family line is continued, anything else that happens is not really of concern. Indeed, one of the terms used to allude to homosexuality in China was the persuasion of the academics, most of those academics being, in fact, Confucian scholars. The Chinese Taoist tradition that had such a powerful influence on, say, Zen Buddhism also does not take issue with homosexuality. Indeed, in Taoist thought, too much heterosexual intercourse is actually bad for a man. It causes them to lose their vital yang energy by absorbing too much of a woman's yin. Homosexual relationships, however, do not work that way for obvious reasons. Shinto, meanwhile, is, well, not even really a religion in the way that most Westerners would understand that term. 
Certainly, it doesn't have a long history of religious jurisprudence that would weigh on sexual behavior in the way that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam do. And Buddhism tends to view all sexual relationships functionally the same way, as a distraction, though often a necessary one, from the path to enlightenment. Homosexuality is not really mentioned much in early Buddhist texts, except that it is prohibited to monks, as is sexual intercourse more broadly. Many later variants of Buddhism, including many in Japan, would even lift that celibacy requirement for monks. Now, of course, beyond this intellectual background, any good history of Japan starts with another place, with China. And here, as with so much else, the Japanese tradition borrowed heavily from the Chinese one. Records of homosexual relationships in China date back to the 6th century before the Common Era. The first great work of Chinese written history, the Shirji, or Records of the Grand Historian, Sima Qian, devotes an entire chapter to homosexuality, one that begins, quote, It is not women alone who can use their looks to attract the eye of a ruler. Courtiers and eunuchs can play at that game as well. Many were the men of ancient times who gained a favor this way, unquote. Indeed, even the traditional Japanese term for male-male sexuality, nanshoku, a combination of the characters for male and color, that term color also having some sexual undertones in some usage, is simply a Japanese reading of a term that originally came from Chinese. The Korean tradition, by which Japan was also influenced, also seems to have been neutral on homosexual relationships, if not openly supportive, at least before the rise of the Joseon dynasty. One of the institutions of one of Korea's great kingdoms, the Shilla dynasty, was the Hwarong, the flower boy, who served as a warrior, ritual dancer, and companion to the aristocracy, and quite possibly, though not definitely, as a lover as well. All of this is an elaborate way of saying that homosexuality in Japan started from a very different place than it did in, say, Western Europe. It was, in fact, practiced pretty openly. To my mind, there's no better example of that when we get to the Japanese context than the tale of Genji. It's been a long time since we talked about the book I once slammed as the pre-modern Japanese version of Twilight, and for the record, I stand by that, the pillow book of Seishonagun is far more entertaining to read. If you need a refresher, The Tale of Genji was written by one of Japan's great writers, a woman known to history as Murasaki Shikibu. It tells the story of Prince Genji, the estranged son of the emperor, and his romantic adventures across the city of Kyoto, Heian at the time. Said adventures were primarily, but not exclusively, with women. The best example comes in chapters 12 and 13, when Genji pursues a relationship with Lady Utsemi. To get to her, he relies on her younger brother, a boy named Kogimi. Genji is probably, though not definitely, successful in sleeping with Utsemi, but apparently she wasn't very into it because she refuses to see him again, even with Kogimi's intercessions on Genji's behalf. She dodges each time by hiding in the women's wing of the family home. Kogimi, distraught, returns to Genji and informs him that it looks like things just aren't going to work out with seeing his sister again. Heartbroken, the boy cries that he has failed Genji, who has promised to be his benefactor in exchange for help with his sister. At which point, Genji pulls Kogimi into bed with him instead. 
Chapter 13 concludes, quote, The boy was delighted, such were Genji's youthful charms. Genji, for his part, or so one is informed, found the boy more attractive than his chilly sister, unquote. Some scholars refer to this ending as ambiguous. Frankly, I don't see much ambiguous about it. Genji is far from the only example, and I mean far from it. Some of the cases are actually ambiguous or difficult to read clearly. For example, the Shokuni Hongi, a historical chronicle compiled in 869 CE, records with disdain the behavior of Crown Prince Funado no Ou in 757 CE. After the death of his grandfather, rather than respecting the official mourning period, quote, even before the grass on his grandfather's tomb had dried up, the prince secretly had sexual relationships with Jido and was disrespectful to the former emperor. Now, in later contexts, Jido would mean definitely a young male attendant. However, at this point, it's unclear whether the term also included maidservants. It may have acquired the exclusively male meaning at a later date. Other cases are less ambiguous, at least again to my reading. The Manyoshu, the first great collection of Japanese poetry, composed in 785 CE, includes the following from the famous poet Otomono Yakamochi, written upon parting from a friend. Quote, It must be because you listen to others' slander, that, although I wait for you, my lord, intensely you do not come. If rather our friendship has ended, would I now be yearning like this, making you the thread of my vital breath? I who long for him, though he does not think of me, with all my heart consumed, with each tiny fiber exhausted, unquote. Again, don't know about you, seems pretty unambiguous to me. Closer to the imperial court, the private diaries of two members of the Fujiwara clan, Fujiwara no Yorinaga and Fujiwara no Kanizane, describe at least two emperors, Shirakawa, who reigned from 1073 to 1087, and Toba, who reigned from 1107 to 1123, as having kept young men in the imperial palace explicitly for the purpose of being their lovers. Emperor Go Shirakawa, whose short reign lasted only two years after his coronation in 1156, though his influence as an insei, a retired emperor, lasted far longer, took a Fujiwara boy as his lover. Remember Sima-chan's line, it's not only women who can charm their way into power. In return for the Fujiwara boy's interest, Go Shirakawa elevated him to a position of political power in the government, only to have him executed in 1159 when the boy joined the Heiji Rebellion on the side of the Minamoto clan against Go Shirakawa's preferred Taira clan. Godaigo, the emperor who tried to restore the power of the imperial throne in the 1330s, took the young son of one of his chief lieutenants, Hinosuke Tomo, as his lover. None of this changed with the downfall of the imperial court from political power. If anything, the shoguns and regents of the first half of the samurai era were even more likely to openly keep homosexual lovers than their imperial predecessors. The other place where homosexual relationships appear to have been quite common was within the Buddhist clergy. The practice appears to have been justified as a sort of halfway point to the complete sexual abstinence 
that was encouraged in some of the early Buddhist writings, a compromised position, if you will. That exact rationale is spelled out in the introduction to a collection of homosexual-themed erotica from the mid-Tokugawa period. Quote, The Buddha preached that female-male sex was to be avoided, and thus priests of his law first entered this way, homosexuality, as an outlet for their feelings, since their hearts were, after all, made of neither stone nor wood. Unquote. The Catholic counterparts of these Buddhist priests saw this practice all around them when they arrived in Japan. Francis Xavier, the famous Jesuit missionary, was outraged by what he saw as an indulgence in the abominable vice of Sodom by the Buddhist clergy, and wrote in his letters that, quote, the evil is simply become a habit, unquote. He also noted that the priests, quote, are drawn to sins against nature and do not deny it, they acknowledge it openly. This evil is, moreover, so public, so clear to all, men and women, young and old, and they are so used to seeing it, that they are neither depressed nor horrified, unquote. Indeed, Catholic missionaries were so concerned at this practice, they seemed to have worried that it was somehow ingrained into the Japanese psyche. Catechisms for Catholic converts produced in the 1580s warn very specifically against it, probably on the assumption that a convert raised in Japan would believe it to be an expectation of religious orders rather than a sin. That same attitude, in turn, spread to the samurai, where homosexuality came to be practiced very openly. After all, Buddhism was a common faith among the samurai, so it only made sense to imitate the practices of that priesthood. In addition to the mimicry of the Buddhist clergy, samurai culture surrounding homosexuality was profoundly impacted by its tendency to denigrate the value of women particularly during the Edo period, when Neo-Confucian attitudes demanding that women submit to men erased an older, more permissive ideology surrounding women. For a Tokugawa period samurai, male strength, especially samurai male strength, was to be admired as an example of warrior virtue, and it was pretty easy to make the intellectual leap into eroticizing that virtue. In both the Buddhist priesthood and the samurai, homosexual relationships appear to have followed a fairly set path. An older partner, the ninja, takes a younger partner, called the chigo, under his wing and instructs him either in the ways of the Buddha or the ways of the samurai. The chigo, in turn, was expected to submit to the ninja sexually as an expression of love and gratitude. Once the chigo had grown up, the relationship was generally expected to end, though the two were encouraged to remain friends. Even among men of around the same age, this sort of hierarchy within the relationship was expected. Generally, that hierarchy was expected to reflect broader social hierarchies as well. It was preferable as a samurai to take a chigo from a lower social class rather than taking a samurai close to your own age. Now you might notice that the relationships I'm highlighting here are all male-male, and there is a reason for that. Japan was, and still is, a pretty patriarchal society, particularly as we get closer and closer to the modern period. The substantial written record surrounding homosexuality is, as a result, dominated by men, and depictions of male-male homosexual relationships tend to dominate. That's not to say there's no evidence of female-female relationships. Indeed, the tendency to raise children sex-segregated well past puberty plus the phenomenon of situational homosexuality, practically guarantees 
that lesbian relationships were not uncommon. References to lesbianism in written works still crop up, though indirectly. The famed Edo period comic writer Ihara Saikaku, for example, described what he called otoku nikumi bikuni, or man-hating nuns, which seems to suggest a similar set of practices among Buddhist nuns to the ones that prevailed among Buddhist monks if you get the drift, though of course we cannot always take Ihara Saikaku at his word because he was, in the end, a satirist and an erotic writer looking to make a buck rather than record the accurate truth of the world. The sale of marital aids is also well documented in the Tokugawa period, and provides some indirect evidence of lesbian relationships, because here we see things like the Taigai Gata, the double-ended dildo, and Jesus Christ, I just said the word dildo on my podcast. Anyway, the ad copy for items like these suggests that they were also sold to male-female couples, where the man was a bit older and having the problems older men have now and then, but the double-ended thing also suggests a certain something, as does the fact that in some cases, the taigai part of this word was written not with the usual character for partners or both people, but with an invented one that uses the character for women twice. The sale of printed erotica depicting two women was also fairly common. Indeed, the great artist Hokusai made some, shall we say, fairly spicy prints to that effect. Speaking of Hokusai, it's also theorized that his third daughter, Oi, may have been less than 100% straight. She married once, but divorced and never remarried, and appears to have resisted a more traditionally feminine role in life in favor of a more masculine presentation. Which is not conclusive, to be sure, but that tendency to reject traditional gender roles is often correlated with homosexuality in Tokugawa literature, and also, by the way, she made, like, a lot of lesbian erotica. Speaking of such things, the most obvious record we have of same-sex inclinations from the Edo period would seem to be the long list of erotic prints, shunga, from the period, which depict, well, pretty much every possible combination, so to speak. However, these are difficult sources to rely on when it comes to female-female encounters specifically, because it's hard to know how much of what was out there existed for male consumption, for the fulfillment of men's fantasies, as opposed to those of women. We have enough external sources from Tokugawa period men to be relatively sure what's what when it comes to male-male erotica, but the dominance of men in that written record makes it much harder to establish that context for women. Still, it's reasonably clear that well lesbian relationships were not privileged in the same way that homosexual relationships within the monastic community or among samurai often were, they were also not frowned upon in any particular sense. They were accorded social toleration, neither promoted nor disapproved of. We also have good records establishing a system of same-sex prostitution for men. Remember, after all, kabuki drama itself got started as a vehicle for advertising prostitution, and that side of the business didn't exactly go away after women were barred from the stage. There's also evidence that at least some of the licensed quarters employed same-sex prostitutes for their female clients as well. Edo's Yoshiwara quarter definitely did at at least some points during the Tokugawa period. The overall impression, then, is that pre-modern Japanese society was generally tolerant of homosexuality in a way not seen in the pre-modern Western world. Now, to be sure, 
Tolerance does not mean the same thing in this context, nor is tolerance the same thing as open acceptance. Same-sex marriage, for example, was not a thing in the Tokugawa world. To put it a bit more clearly, homosexuality as an act a person engaged in was acceptable. Homosexuality as an identity that defined your whole life, your broader social relationships, would be looked at askance. That division stems in large part from Confucian influence on the Tokugawa state. Remember, the chief concern of Confucians is the perpetuation of a ritually harmonious family, and those family units were defined in a very traditional way. The function of the family relationship was in turn deeply hierarchical and reliant on a family structure grounded in gender norms, and of course on traditional reproduction, so to speak. There was also a tendency among Confucians to idealize China, which during the Qing Dynasty actually did end up passing anti-homosexuality laws for complex reasons that we don't have room to get into. Japanese Neo-Confucians pushed for similar laws in Edo period Japan, but they were never successful in totally emulating that part of Chinese practice. However, homosexuality was only tolerated in as much as it did not disrupt openly a carefully calculated Confucian-grounded social order. Things changed quite a bit after the downfall of the Tokugawa system. Remember, the justification for Western empires coming to places like Japan and imposing their system of unequal treaties was supposed to be the backwardness of non-Westerners. Simply put, in the eyes of Western empires, these people were not civilized, and precisely because they were not civilized, it was okay to treat them as lesser. And what counted as uncivilized in this reckoning? Well, a lot of things, honestly, but one of them was open toleration of homosexuality, which mainstream interpretations of the day considered degenerate. Victorian moralizing often associated the sin of Sodom with places that were corrupt and decadent. Thus, in an effort to seem acceptable to the Western world, the Meiji government introduced Japan's first anti-sodomy law in 1873, which banned male-male anal intercourse. This was the only law banning homosexual acts in Japanese history. Nothing comparable was ever passed for women. Of course, there were a few issues with this new law, chief among them that anal sex is but one option between two consenting men, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, all I'm going to say is go take a look at the human sexuality section of Wikipedia. Beyond that, the law was difficult to enforce outside traditional strongholds of the new government like Tokyo. In more traditional parts of the country, especially areas with strong samurai traditions, the male-male tradition of the ninja and chigo endured well into the 20th century. Satsuma is actually a great example of this. The ninja chigo system remained a part of the domain's militarized ethos well after the domain itself no longer existed, into the 20th century, in fact. Open acceptance of these relationships did stop, however. That was considered to be too scandalous to increasingly westernized sensibilities among urban Japanese in particular. Now, recognizing the futility of openly enforcing this law, the government did eventually repeal it in 1881. The only place where homosexuality remained illegal was in prison. Both men's and women's prisons had policies against lewd behavior between their sex-segregated inmates, though stories from both men and women's prisons 
make it very clear that like the old Tokugawa period sumptuary laws, whose frequent reissuings reminded samurai of the importance of frugality and simple living, the repeated posting of the rules did nothing so much as underscore how few people actually followed them, thus the constant need to remind folks that said rules did in fact exist. So, though the anti-sodomy law was lifted in 1881, anti-sodomy campaigns by the government and campaigns to repress homosexuality did continue. These appear to have had some success in changing broader social attitudes around homosexuality, but that success was limited in part by the increasingly martial nature of Japanese society during the early 20th century. Remember, both the army and the navy tied themselves very explicitly in their rhetoric to the samurai, and positioned themselves as modern defenders of Bushido, a tradition which was, of course, very publicly associated with male-male homosexuality. Thus, Japan's new age of samurai tended to have at least a somewhat permissive attitude towards, shall we say, more old-fashioned samurai relationships. Now, after the war, in many ways very little changed. Though the U.S. occupation imported American laws on practically everything else, from school districts to voting to human rights, anti-sodomy and anti-homosexuality ordinances were never put into place, as they had been in so many states and municipalities in the United States itself. That meant that the new democratic government of Japan did with homosexuality what it did with so many areas where it was left to its own initiative. It carried on like precisely squat had changed from the old imperial government. Homosexual acts remained legal, but the Victorian sensibilities that had come over during the Meiji period had taken real root in Japanese society. The subject of homosexuality was profoundly taboo to discuss publicly, a national don't-ask-don't-tell, so to speak. When people did discuss it openly, the result was usually quite a stir. Mishima Yukio, for example, turned his pen to the subject in his second novel, Kamen no Kokaku, or Confessions of a Mask. The main character of the novel is gay and grows up in Imperial Japan, unable to admit that to himself. Instead, he rationalizes his feelings by saying that he merely admires masculinity and the strength and power that men demonstrate. Instead, he tries to force himself to fall in love with a woman, which naturally doesn't work out, and ends up abandoning her. Despite the obviously autobiographical inspiration, the hero of Confessions of a Mask, like Mishima, is a sickly boy with intellectual inclinations who grew up during the Second World War, Mishima denied any homosexual feelings on his own part during his life, and instead got married and had two kids. His widow continued to deny that her husband had any homosexual feelings on his own part. That denial continued even after Mishima wrote two more books on the subject of closeted homosexuality, Kinjiki, or Forbidden Colors, and Higyo, or Secret Pleasures, and visited several gay bars in Tokyo for research. Which, I mean, I'm not saying Mishima was definitely gay or anything, but a former partner of his, Fukushima Jiro, did come out and just admit that he'd slept with Mishima in 1951, and also, come on, nobody's fooled. What's more interesting, frankly, than litigating whether or not Mishima Yukio slept with men, again, come on, is unpacking what we know of homosexual life for Japanese during this period, thanks to his writings. Mishima's gay characters go to three main places to find partners. 
They cruise parks late at night. They go to parties hosted by friends to whom they are out, so to speak. Or they visit a small number of gay bars in Tokyo. Mishima's British friend, Henry Scott Stokes, noted that there was one place in particular in Shinjuku, called Brunswick's, that Mishima frequented. All in all, the picture we get from Mishima, whose work, as odd as it can sometimes be, not a fan myself, offers us one of the few clear looks into gay culture in the immediate post-war period, a society that, it seems, has a remarkable amount of continuity with the pre-war period. Homosexuality isn't criminalized, but it isn't welcome either. Instead, it's pushed off into a hidden and separate world where homosexuals can continue to operate freely so long as they do not threaten the existing social order or hierarchy and continue to meet their social obligations and to appear, quote-unquote, normal in public. That norm, that standard, is being increasingly challenged today in Japan, as a gay rights movement influenced heavily by other movements around the world has begun to organize in Japan itself. The target of said movement is twofold. First, the legalization of same-sex marriage along the lines of what exists in most of the rest of the first world today, and second, changes in the social attitude towards homosexuality. In doing so, these activists had a difficult obstacle to overcome, a provision of the Constitution we ourselves have discussed on this show before. Article 24 of Japan's Constitution reads, quote, Marriage shall be based only on the mutual consent of both sexes, and it shall be maintained through mutual cooperation with the equal rights of husband and wife as a basis. Remember, this article was drafted by Austrian-American Beata Sarota, who believed, based on her experience living in Japan, that protection for married women had to be written into the Constitution so that chauvinistic Japanese men could not change the laws after the Americans left. Admirable as that idea was, it had an unexpected result. The language of the Japanese Constitution now seems to read pretty clearly that marriages only exist between straight couples. Japan's civil code, which was carried over from the pre-war period, though it's been heavily amended, obviously, also uses terms like husband and wife in relation to marriage, rather than the gender-neutral partners. As a result, up until the late 2000s, same-sex marriages were not recognized under any circumstances. Even if you got married in a country that did allow them, that would not transfer back to Japan, and a binational couple with one Japanese member could not get a visa for the other member on the basis of their marriage, because the Japanese government did not recognize it. However, in 2009, the more progressive Democratic Party of Japan government issued new rules on the matter allowing for marriages overseas to be recognized in Japan. And in 2015, the Shibuya Ward government announced that it would begin putting plans in place to allow for same-sex marriage. Setagaya Ward, also in Tokyo, followed suit a few months later. As of today, the cities of Iga, Naha, Sapporo, Fukuoka, Osaka, and Takarazuka have announced similar plans. Interestingly, most of these cities have left-leaning governments, as does Setagaya Ward, but Shibuya actually doesn't. Its mayor is an independent, backed by the governing conservative coalition. However, this appears to be an anomaly rather than a change in position among Japanese conservatives. There's no sense of a wider policy shift in the Abe government at the national level, for example. 
Beyond marriage, the broader attitudes of Japanese society remain, well, frankly, very close to where they were in the rest of the post-war era. Homosexuals are not a protected class in Japan and can be legally, if not ethically, discriminated against. Such discrimination does happen. In the early 2000s, three young Japanese attacked gay parkgoers in Tokyo and killed one, and at their trial, one of the defendants is quoted as having said, quote, it's safe to attack gays because they don't report it to the police, unquote. Attacks like that do happen. It's hard to know how frequent they are because, as the attacker himself noted, they frequently go unreported. Japanese popular culture today does seem to have grown more tolerant. There are growing numbers of out-celebrities and television personalities, such as the model Sato Kayo and the former volleyball star Takizawa Nanae who jokingly referred to herself as the Ellen DeGeneres of Japan, which I guess means she has a boring TV show people keep switching on at the gym while I'm trying to watch the damn news from Seahawks training camp. And yet, crude stereotypes about gay folks continue to pop up in popular culture as well. One need look no further than Sumitani Masaki, a comedian far better known by the name of his most infamous character, Hard Gay. Sumitani originally invented the character for pro wrestling, but now uses him in comedy shows. His most recent appearance on TV as Hard Gay is from 2016. And outside of popular culture, being outed can still have serious consequences. In 2015, a male grad student in law at Hitotsubashi University killed himself after being outed by a classmate he'd hit on. His family is now suing the student who outed him for damages. I don't know where that case is standing today, unfortunately. So in brief, that's the history of Japan's homosexual communities. At first glance, they certainly operated in a society far more permissive than that of the West, at least for most of recorded history. But that permissiveness had a clear line in the sand attached to it. Homosexuality had to remain in the bedroom, and attempts to take it beyond that, to aim for public acceptance are only very recently beginning to get off the ground. Still, there is hope for the future. A 2013 Pew Research poll found that 54% of Japanese respondents answered yes to the question, should society accept homosexuality? The third highest count in Asia, behind 79% for Australia and 73% for the Philippines. For comparison, 39% of South Korean respondents said yes as did 21 in mainland China. Is this indicative of a broader trend? How long will lasting change take? Will there be roadblocks along the way? As always, we'll see. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net. That's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week, when we will start a series on the colonial history of Japan in Taiwan.